Hello and welcome to episode 67 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, Due South. Over the last three episodes, and arguably much of the last 66, our eyes have been diverted from the southernmost part of Yugoslavia, the Republic of Macedonia. There's ample reason to have passed over it. For one, while it had a sizable Albanian minority, it avoided the issues seen in Kosovo so far due primarily to, well, not being Serbia and not being the Republic directing most of the aggression towards Kosovo or having any sort of historical claim towards Kosovo. Secondly, similarly to Slovenia, Macedonians broadly kept to Macedonia in contrast to the melting pots of Croatia, Bosnia and elsewhere. And finally, Outside of Vardar's cup exploits at the start of the 60s and the league win that wasn't a league win that sort of was a league win in the mid-1980s, the impact of Macedonian clubs has been pretty limited. While the occasional player has imposed themselves on the timeline, be that Darko Panchev or the half-Macedonian Dragosov Sekularac, the reality is that only Slovenia really contributed less to the landscape of Yugoslav football than this southernmost republic. But in this episode, it takes centre stage, as Macedonia is about to go from republic to nation. We'll run through which clubs will be part of our timeline going forward, and of course, cover exactly what name that nation should have, as Macedonia's existential threat as a new state came not from the north and the rest of Yugoslavia, but from the south. First things first. As we've not really had cause to mention Macedonia all that much from a political sense, out with the Skopje earthquake since World War II, it's quite important to recognise that while the Socialist Republic of Macedonia did more or less consist geographically of what had been Vardar Macedonia prior to World War II, the actual internal makeup of the place was rather different, as Bulgaria, which had had a large interest in Macedonia prior to World War II, was an Axis state. And Bulgaria, as an Axis state, claimed Macedonia, which naturally drove Macedonians into Tito's arms, and, along with mistakes from the Bulgarians, essentially turned what had been pre-war a pretty diverse state into one with a very set Macedonian identity. In return for Tito's help, and in spite of an independence movement broadly led by the bourgeoisie of the region, Macedonia would become part of a socialist Yugoslavia, and a predict a swift crackdown on anyone thinking about independence occurred. After consolidating a unified Macedonian identity during the war, Yugoslavia immediately dismantled it after the war as, well, for obvious reasons, it didn't align with what Tito wanted Yugoslavia to be. Over the socialist era, hundreds of political trials would take place, with many executed or given long prison sentences for supporting nationalist causes. As such, the early socialist era in Macedonia was one of contrast. On one hand, Yugoslavia had to bring in pragmatic reforms to solidify Macedonia's identity and, at the same time, weed out the more troublesome Bulgarian ones. And they also had to swiftly rebuild infrastructure like schooling and industry. In doing the latter, Yugoslavia was immensely successful. At the end of the war, two-thirds of Macedonians were illiterate. At the end of the socialist era, that was under 10%. Macedonia's economy shot up through industrialization, 
mainly because there simply hadn't been any there before World War II. And while it lagged well behind the northern republics, given where Macedonia started and that it didn't have some of the natural advantages geography lent to, say, Croatia, it thrived in terms of the rate of growth during the 50s and 60s. The problem that Macedonia had, and the driving point for independence, was that as soon as the overall economic health of Yugoslavia started to dip, Macedonia's economy was the first area to see investment and growth disappear. Macedonia had achieved impressive growth, but that growth stopped before everywhere else. And come 1988, employment in there was 16.2%, compared to only 1.7% in Slovenia. GDP per capita was around 70% of the Yugoslav average and well under half of that of Slovenia. And with that economic issue came an ethnic one also. Much like in Kosovo, the first ethnicity hit by the economy were ethnic Albanians and a directed change to the constitution to take Albanians out of being an explicitly stated protective minority, as we see elsewhere in Yugoslavia, created predictable protests. At this point, Albanians limited themselves to petitions and protests. Come independence, that would change. Much like Slovenia, Macedonia asserted their right to independence legally in January 1991, with a referendum penciled in for the September of that year, and the movement pushed ahead by Kiro Kuglorov, who was a veteran of the partisans in World War II and had been tasked with the rebuild of Skopje after the earthquake. He was only involved at all as he'd been coaxed out of retirement to be part of the constitutional reform team. As part of that team, Grigorov's conclusion was similar to that of Milan Kuchan in Slovenia. While he wasn't against Yugoslavia as a concept, he was definitely against the Milosevic-led Yugoslavia that, was turning, that it was turning into. And interestingly, this played out in the Macedonian independence referendum itself, with the question posed by Grigorov the following. Are you for an independent Macedonia with the right to enter a future union of sovereign states of Yugoslavia? The independence referendums we've covered previously have been very definite in terms of what their outcome was to be. But the latter part of this question which left the door open for a reunion with Yugoslavia should, presumably, the place get a whole bit less dicey, meant that the referendum would be boycotted by the Albanian minority, given that ethnic Albanians wanted absolutely nothing to do with the present or future of Yugoslavia, and as such, couldn't approve of an independent Macedonia with the latter part of that statement in place. So while Mas the referendum returned a 95 to 5 majority in favour of independence, that was based on a 72% turnout, which compares unfavourably with the 91% turnout in Slovenia and the 84% turnout in Croatia, as well as also comparing unfavourably with the 1990 Macedonian parliamentary election turnout of over 78%. Within three months of the referendum, Macedonia would become independent, would be recognised by certain nations, and would basically be out on their own, albeit with two significant unresolved issues. That of the Albanian minority, and that 
of their name. Now, the first of these issues had shown itself prior to independence. While the Communist Party hadn't, quote-unquote, won the 1990 election, the Nationalist DMRO had gotten most seats. The Communists still ended up in power after an attempted alliance between the VMRO and the Albanian party of the PDP fell through. While other Albanian parties would exist at this point, the PDP would be by far the most prominent, led by Nefsat Halili. Their demands, as they were, were reasonably simple. Improvements to services in Albanian areas alongside enhanced legal protection from discrimination, etc., essentially putting the word Albanian back into a constitution that only said Macedonian. In January 1992, an illegal referendum would take place about giving the Albanian population autonomy within Macedonia, which would result on April 6, 1992, with the declaration of the Republic of Illyrida, a hybrid name of Illyria and Dardania, as a state within a state. This wouldn't have majority support even within the Albanian community, a community that was watching what was going on in Yugoslavia to the north and wanting absolutely none of that. We'll come back to the Albanians in Macedonia in a few episodes time, as they would make their mark in the final chapter, or perhaps as the final chapter, of the Yugoslav Wars. The second issue mentioned was, of course, the name of the country, and, as a result, Greece. And it demands a bit of an in-depth explanation as to what is, to an outsider, an extremely odd diplomatic standoff. And I will apologise in advance for this section that's about to come up, because, I'm going to be honest, it got away from me in length of it. Um, but there really is that much detail to this most banal of debates. So, to get started... Between around 800 and 150 BC, there was the Kingdom of Macedon, famous for Alexander the Great who set eyes across the Ganges and cried for there were no more worlds left to conquer, and many others. The territory of this ancient kingdom stretched from the Aegean coast and covers around 25% of the country we now call North Macedonia, and probably a similar proportion of Greece. That region would, of course, be taken over by Rome, into what would be Roman Macedonia, which had two divisions. The Greek bit, for want of a better term, covered the same area which Macedon had covered in Greece. However, to the north, it covered a far larger area, all the way up to Nice in Serbia, and even went further south to Larissa. In later Roman times, this would be consolidated into basically a region that can be thought of as including all of northeastern Greece, as in the sticky out bit that runs along the north coast of the Aegean, and pretty much all of North Macedonia. Through the Byzantine era, this region would often be the border province of the empire, and Macedonia as a thing would more or less go out of existence until Greek nationalism brought the term back towards consciousness at the end of the Ottoman era. The Balkan Wars would make this altogether more complex, but we would end up basically with what would be South Serbia, or Vardar province, during the Kingdom era of Yugoslavia, and then just Macedonia during the Socialist era, while the Greek part of it was referred to as Aegean Macedonia within Yugoslavia, particularly during the Greek Civil War, to avoid any confusion. 
So, when the region became independent, the natural logical name for it was, of course, Macedonia. Given that it had been named that for the best part of 50 years previously, and that it does cover the region known as Macedon in antiquity. To put it mildly, Greece didn't agree. Some of Greece's issues are risible at best, such as the Greek foreign ministry claiming that Josip Broz Tito, yes, that Tito, was responsible for, quote, starting to cultivate the idea of a separate and discreet Macedonian nation, which is a line, I swear, that someone actually said with a straight face about a leader in Tito whose entire leadership was built around not cultivating or accepting nationalism of any form, anywhere. In short, Greece's claim is that everyone thinks of Macedonia as a Greek thing because, well, they spent two millennia telling everyone about Alexander the Great and so, as such, they have dibs on the name Macedonia and no one else should be allowed to use it. Now, on this podcast, we're going to be calling North Macedonia by the name Macedonia. Because, to be quite honest, if you go around Skopje calling the country North Macedonia, you're liable to get a stern word or two. And given our subject matter, it's obviously far more appropriate to be leaning towards the Macedonian side of this argument for naming as opposed to the Greek side of the argument. I mean, who knows what they'd actually want them to be named. Quite aside from anything, it's also really, really easy just to accidentally call it Macedonia as shorthand when you're actually trying to call it North Macedonia. And if I say Macedonia, I'm going to be entirely honest, I'm sure you all know what I mean. But odd as this debate may seem, it had some very real implications for the new state. Specifically, that the Greeks immediately threw a fit that the place dared call itself Macedonia. When the EU wanted to grant recognition to the state, Greece made sure it was blocked because they viewed the, the very name of the status implying hostile territorial claims on their land. While most ex-communist states and, of course, Turkey, who presumably were on the wind-up, recognised Macedonia as Macedonia, Actual international recognition of the state just sat in limbo as no one could get over the naming issue, which held up recognition from the EU and from the UN. Especially when the proposed solution was to call the place the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Which was a somewhat odd and inelegant way to try to solve the issue of the country's name implying they wanted Greek territory, by having the country's name implying that Yugoslavia could have it as its own territory. Eventually, however, that would become the solution that would get Macedonian recognition, after the EU and NATO put pressure on Greece to just shut up and get on with it before war ended up spilling over into Macedonia. For their part, the Macedonian government weren't especially happy with affairs, but with Greece acquiescing for now, it was better to just get on with the business of being a country rather than getting stuck in squabbles around what to call the place. Even then, the UN resolution sorting this all out was tricky to say the least. The name, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, was only ever meant to be provisional until a permanent solution was found. Seating plans were made impossible. Greece wouldn't let them sit with the N nations. Macedonia didn't want to sit with the F nations. 
So eventually they sat with the T nations as the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. To be entirely honest, there could be an entire episode on Greek, Macedonian and Greek beef over the name of the place. A beef that would carry on for another 25 years after this until the Presper Agreement. As far as this episode is concerned, we're done with it. What we're not done with, however, is the football. As much like the last couple of episodes with Croatia and Slovenia, we finish up by covering just who would make up the first Macedonian league. This group of sides came from across the first three tiers of Yugoslav football and the Republic League. Two from the first, two from the second, seven from the third, and seven from the Republic, which, unsurprisingly, meant a wild variance in quality of side. Starting with the Republic League sides and FCU 55, named similarly to many sides across Yugoslavia after local industry, in this case the Ushie Cement Factory, which eventually would see the club renamed in later years as FK Cementarnica 55 with the great nickname of the Concrete Boys. Another company club would be Sloga Yugomagna, Set up in, as FK Zafer in 1927, they renamed to Sloga, meaning unity, in 1945, in recognition of their multi-ethnic roots, with Yugo Magnet coming into the club in 1989. They would be a major force after independence, but that particular story will need to wait a bit. Metallurg Skopje won the Republic League in 87, but would disappear quickly, with their return to prominence coming in the 2010s. Rudar Probistip no longer exists, having fallen by the wayside during COVID. FK Sasa, another mining club like Rudar, would enter this first independence season as reigning Republic League champions. Tikvesh were a big club around the 70s, with multiple second league appearances and were based around the wine industry. The fans are known as the Wine Growers, and the local derby against Vardar Negatino is the Wine Growers derby. The 80s had been a period of decline, but fortunes had just begun to change for the better at the turn of the decade. The final Republic League entrance would be Vardarsky, who would go down in the first season and never return to any sort of relevance at all. The third league team started with a club that produced a certain Goran Pandev in the Kangaroos of Belasica, whose golden period was the 1980s, winning the Republic League in 83 and 88. For those wondering, the nickname of the club, the Kangaroos, comes from football coming to the town from British Empire soldiers during the First World War. Boric would win the Republic League in 1989, but wouldn't last too long in the independent top flight. Bregalnica Stip were formed 100 years ago and had a 20-year period of success between 64 and 84, winning the Republic League four times. Makedonia Georgi Petrov, commonly known as Macedonian GP, had started at Hask before going through periods as Lokomotiva, Pobeda, Ruda, Industrialek and Yugokokta through three different industries um, until settling on their current name in 1989. It is worth noting that this is not the same Macedonia GP that plays now. That club is based around FK Tresca, who were bought by the board of 
this Macedonian GP after they had a massive falling out with the FA. Osegovo was set up in 1924 and played out of the Nikola Mantov Stadium, named after a former player who died on the pitch during a game in 1973. Pobeda started in 1941 as Goce Delchev before taking their current name in 59. They picked up eight Republic T League titles and, similarly to Macedonian GP, aren't to be confused with the Pobeda who play now. Finally, Silex had managed some late Yugoslav-era fame, taking the scouts of both Selyesnikar and Sarajevo in the 89-90 Yugoslav Cup. The second league clubs would be Balkan and Tetex. Balkan were arguably Macedonia's first big club, being the first club ever to take part in Yugoslav league football in the Kingdom era, and it's probably fair to say most of their relevance to football in the region would be historical and prior to the socialist era, even if their late era performances were good. Tetex from Tetovo began as Textilek and during the Yugoslav era, picked up four Republic Leagues and even won the 1981 Second League. As their past denotes, they would be the working class side of Tetovo against the more bourgeois side of Ljubotin, who would win the first edition of Macedonia's second tier and are actually the country's oldest club. Finally, the two first league clubs, both post-World War II constructs. Pelista finished sixth in the 91 second league, but the withdrawal of Slovenian and Croatian sides saw them bumped up a tier to the first league for the 91-92 season, which we're going to talk about more in the next episode. And, well, they didn't disgrace themselves. They are one half of Macedonia's eternal derby, the Veshno, and started that rivalry in 1991 in a game that had to be abandoned after fights between Palista's ultras, the Chikambari, and police. Their opponents in those derbies are, of course, Fardar. They've been in the timeline plenty before, and they really do need no introduction. So, three nations down and one to go for now. But before we commit ourselves fully to Bosnia, we need to talk about football in the rest of Yugoslavia. Because next time on the History of Yugoslav Football podcast, football has to adapt to a new reality without some of its biggest clubs. But while it adapts, the final death blow to Yugoslav football would occur, not in Belgrade, or in Zagreb, or in Sarajevo, but in New York City. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on your uh, favoured uh, podcasting service if they offer the ability for you to do that. If you've enjoyed it even more than that and want to be really enthusiastic, you can, of course, uh, mention it to people on social media and stuff. Sharing is caring um, and we do love having new ears on uh, the podcast particularly as um, I think anyone coming into um, the podcast timeline now there is ample backstory um, for you to catch up on um, a whole 60 well, 67 episodes now of the timeline as well as uh, all the stuff where I talk about um, the football now and the 
sort of bonus profile episodes and things like that we did earlier in the podcast that I will get round to actually completing properly. Um, probably where I'm finished the timeline because I can't focus on two things at once. Um, so all that remains is for me to say thank you very much as always for taking the time to listen and I will catch you next time. <laughs>